so of the maybe whoops uh, whole point of this. So uh, Dr. Michael Heiser says the images of God eternal members in his family have a lot more to do than cloud lounging and singing. But discerning that requires grasping heavenly hosts, angelic participation, and reclaiming the nations currently under the dominion of evil, supernatural beings, a theology of heavenly hosts is indispensable for conceiving our eternal destiny as co-rulers with Jesus. So understanding what the angels do now and uh, helps us then know what we will do uh, on the new heaven and the new earth. So with that in mind, let's begin to look. Um, we're still in the second temple period, and uh, just uh, the second temple period uh, writings are from the building of the second temple um, by, uh, I believe, Zerubbabel to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. It's a 500-year period. Um, it's the time between the New Testament or the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, and so these writings inform the thinkers oftentimes of the New Testament. So understanding uh, angels and <coughs> even any scripture, we have to have somewhat of an understanding of the intertestamental period or the second temple period time. Now, this is a Dead Sea Scroll, and we talked about that last week, that uh, Lynn and Franklin even remember the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, and that was a pretty big discovery. And we talked about how uh, the uh, research for Dead Sea Scrolls is slow, um, but it's still coming out. So we're going to read uh, one from the Dead Sea Scrolls and then a passage from the Old Testament Pseudopigrapha. So let's look at the Dead Sea Scroll passage. Uh, Israel, for this will be the day determined by him since ancient times for the war of extermination against the sons of darkness. On this day, the assembly of the gods and the congregations of men shall confront each other for a great destruction. Right, that sounds familiar. What's that sound like? We will learn that about that in Revelation on Sunday. Armageddon, yeah. The sons of light and the light, the lot of darkness shall be shall battle together for the God's might between the roar of the huge multitude and the shout of the gods and of men on the day of the calamity. It will be a time of suffering for all the na for all the nation redeemed of God. All their sufferings, none will be like this. Hasten till eternal redemption is fulfilled on the day of their war against Kittim. They shall go out to destruction in the war. The sons of light will be the strongest during these lots in order to strike down wickedness and in three others, the armies of Belial, which Belial is a name for Satan in second temple literature, will guard themselves in order to force the lot of light to retreat. There will be infantry battalions to melt the heart, but God's might will strengthen the hearts of the sons of light. And in the seventh lot, God's great hand will subdue Belial and all the angels of his dominion and all the men of his lot, the holy ones, he will appear to assist truth for the destruction of the sons of darkness. And that's in the Dead Sea Scrolls, um, the war, one of the war scrolls. 
And then uh, Enoch, um, oh, I didn't read the Enoch one. So the, the, the next one is the heavenly council. Uh, angels are a he- form a heavenly council. And this is embraced by the Second Temple writings, as we see in the Dead Sea Scrolls 4Q400. Verse 1, of the instructor song of the sacrifice of the first Sabbath, the fourth of the first month, praise the God, praise the God of, and then we're dealing with the manuscripts that has blanks in it. Does that make sense? So that's why we've got brackets and dots, because we're just looking at one manuscript. They don't have any other manuscript that uh, look, so it's missing words. So you gods of the most holy ones, and in the divinity of his kingdom rejoice because he has established the most holy ones among the eternal holy ones so that for him they can be priests of the inner sanctum in the temple of his kingship, the servants of the presence in the glorious sanctuary in the assembly of all the divinity. So this is the idea of angels being a council in the throne room of God. And we already see this in like Daniel Right, we see this in First Kings. We've seen this in the Old Testament. Um, so this is just being reaffirmed in the Second Temple Temple literature of the knowledge of the Council of all the spirits of God. He has engraved His audience for all the spiritual creatures and His glorious perceptions for those who establish knowledge. The people of the intelligence of His divine glory. And then there's a blank in the text for those who are close to knowledge. So this is the idea of a council, right? A heavenly council. So angels in the Indo-Testament period have the function of guarding, interceding, and interpreting uh, visions and prophecies. Enoch in the Pseudepigrapha, Old Testament Pseudepigrapha, is a good passage for that. Enoch 40, verse 4 through 10. These all should be on your papers, too, if you can't see the screen. The first voice was blessing the name of the Lord of Spirits. The second voice I heard blessed the elect one and the elect ones who are clinging to the Lord of the Spirits. And the third voice I heard interceding and praying on behalf of those who dwell on the earth and supplicating in the name of the Lord of the Spirits. So this angel is interceding, right, uh, for the people on the earth. We kind of have somewhat of an idea of that in Revelation where the angel takes the bowl from the saints under the altar and, and brings them to the Lord. He's like, and pours out the prayers of the saints before the altar. He's in, he's in a role of interceding there, like in Revelation. And the fourth voice I heard expelling demons and forbidding them from coming to the Lord of spirits in order to accuse those who dwell on the earth. So here we have that sense of garden, gardening, guardianship, guarding uh, people. And after that, I asked the angels of peace who was going with me and showed me everything that was hidden. So here we have the angel of peace. He's interpreting, he's explaining, he's revealing, uh, you know, uh, the the hidden things. Uh, So that was hidden. Who are these four faces which I have seen and these voices I have heard and written down? And he said the first one is, so now he's totally interpreting, right? The first one is merciful and forbearing Michael. The second one, who is set over all disease and every wound of children of your people, is Raphael. The third, who is set over all exercise of strength, is Gabriel. 
and the false who is set over all the actions of repentance unto the, unto the hope of those who would inherit uh, eternal life is Phanuel by name. Um, obviously, the two uh, angels that we pick up on in the New Testament is who? Who are they? Not, they're in this list, but who are they? Michael, yep, that's right, Franklin, and who's the other one? Gabriel, Michael and Gabriel, the two named angels in the New Testament, okay? Now that we have this background, let's turn into a survey of the heavenly host in the New Testament and learn how angels affect our views of what we'll be doing for all eternity, Okay? So now we're out of the second temple period, and we're going, we're going to be in the New Testament. Most familiar ground for all of us. Any questions so far? No questions. Okay. Okay, so <coughs> the verse term we'll deal with is with the nature in the New Testament. It's the Greek word gods or theoi. And 1 Corinthians 8, 1 through 6 is a good example of that. Let's look at that now. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And two, if anyone imagined that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Now, God there is not theoi, but what do you think it is in the Greek? Any idea? Theos. Okay, so it's a singular form. So, therefore, as to eating food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, right? And that there is no God but one. So, an idol is just an idol. Does that make sense? In and of itself, it has no real existence. But what's behind an idol? What does an idol? Satan, a demon, right? Or, in this sense, he uses it, the word gods, right? Well, there, there are many so-called gods, right, in heaven, theoi, or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, right? So gods in heaven is a spiritual nature of talking about many spiritual beings. And these ones that usually when it's little g gods are bad spiritual beings, right? Uh, another term the, the New Testament used would be demons, right? Yet for us, there is one God, the Father, whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all, all, whom all, through whom all, all things and through whom we exist. Now, this isn't an argument that there is no other spiritual being. This is an argument that God 
capital God, is our God. And we alone worship him, right? Just like Jesus Christ is our Lord. There's a lot of other lords, right? Lord is a, is a, is, would be our equivalent of Saul, right? Or of a ruler. There's lots of rulers, right? But Jesus is our ruler. Jesus is our Lord, right? So this is an argument for uh, only one spiritual being. This is an argument that for many spiritual beings, but God is our God. And he's the only true God worthy of worship, right? He's the only one that really matters. <laughs> God with the capital G, yes. Yeah. But theos or theois, theoi, uh, both of those terms are in reference to just, it's a generic term in the Greek to represent a spiritual being. Much like Elohim in the Old Testament is speaking of the nature of spiritual beings. If God wants to talk specifically about himself, he'll use the word Yahweh, right? And that's God's personal name. So the second term to speak of the nature of the heavenly host is spirit, pneuma in the Greek. It typically has the accompanying adjective to determine the status of the spirit. Does that make sense? So spirit uh, can mean as three ranges, right? It can mean uh, the, the spirit of uh, heavenly beings. It can be the spirit of a man. It can be the wind blowing across the earth. Okay? So it has those three different ranges. Obviously, the context determines what kind of pneuma or spirit it's talking about. But it typically has an accompanying adjective to determine the status of the spirit. For example, Matthew 1.18, right? Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit, right? That adjective determines what type of spirit it is. And now we know that spirit is the third person of the Trinity, right? And is God, right? Because God is spirit. And those who worship God must worship him in spirit and in truth, right? Then the next one would be uh, in reference to uh, <coughs> demons. Or in this case, they call them unclean spirits. And he called to him his 12 disciples and he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction, right? And then the last one would be about angels. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand that I make your enemies a footstool to my feet? Are they all not ministering, what? Spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who inherit salvation. So spirits is a term that can be used of God, used of demons, or, and used of angels. Do you see that? So it's, it's speaking more of their nature, their, their characteristics of being not embodied. They're disembodied beings, supernatural beings. So the third term to speak of nature is demon or demonai 
in the Greek. In classical Greek, Greek, it means supernatural being without regard to disposition. It's similar to Elohim of the Old Testament. Okay? But in the New Testament, it always points to a supernatural being who is hostile toward God. Okay? So in the New Testament, the New Testament writers take that word and they make it a bad spirit every time. They might say unclean spirit sometimes. Sometimes they'll say it in the same sentence, right? Uh, they'll say unclean spirit, and then the next line they'll use demon uh, in place of that. So they're hostile to God uh, from the new t according to the perspective of the New Testament writers. So Luke 4, 33 says, And in the synagogue there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon. See? And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know you are the Holy One of God. Now, I think it's important to note this uh, demon has knowledge of who God is, but he does not have faith in God's work. Does that make sense? Right? So we can believe, but not, ha I mean, people can believe that there is a God, but that doesn't mean they're saved. They have to have faith in the work of Christ. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in, in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. Okay? So here we have the idea of the unclean spirit thrown in with the idea of demon. And obviously, this demon uh, in Scripture is in reference to the fallen heavenly hosts. Okay? The fourth term of nature is heavenly ones, uh, and I can't say that, so eporanios, uh, I think is probably how you say that, but I'm not very good at that. And it's found in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 48, and obviously we know that 1 Corinthians is talking about the difference of how we take on our spiritual bodies, and here in 48 it says, and as was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of, and here the translator says of heaven, um, and it could be translated, some translations do translate it, heavenly ones. So um, it's easy to say uh, uh, heavenly ones, speaking of angels, right? Any questions so far or comments? No? Okay. Man, I must be clear as mud then. The fifth term for nature... That's right. The fifth term for nature is glorious ones. Doxas. In Second Peter 2.10 and in Jude 8. Now this, it's interesting because each of these places uh, in Jude and in Second Peter are talking about uh, false prophets and those who are teaching heresy. And it says, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passions and despise authority, bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Okay, So they're not afraid of speaking against God and his messengers, right? And Jude 8 says, 
Yet in like manner, these people are relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious one. Okay? The sixth term for the nature is light. Photon, photon, photon in, and this is in James 1.17. This is new to me. I didn't actually know this one for some reason it didn't catch my mind. And it says, for every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. The Father of lights, the Father of the heavenly angels. And I think in my mind, when I was reading that in the past, I always read that the Father of light. And that's not the right reading. It's not singular. It's plural. So if it was singular, which is the way I always read it, which isn't right, but it would mean that God created light, right? But here it's talking about lights, um, and so therefore speaking of angels. And in the Old Testament, angels are definitely referred to as light um, and shining like light. Um, and being flames of fire and, and such. So the seventh term for nature is holy ones. Hagi ice. And that's in Jude 14. And it says it was about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesying, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones, his angels. So angels or spiritual beings are disembodied beings, right? Angels have no need for physical bodies. They have no need for physical procreation, though they can assume a physical form and appear as men and interact with people physically, okay? So um, that's, that's important to note. They, have, they can have physical interactions, and they do. But here, they don't have a need for procreation. Uh, for in the resurrection, they marry, marry or are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. That's the point of that. And then Acts 7, 12, 7 says, And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone, sh shone in the cell. And so he's appearing as a man. And the angel struck Peter on the side and woke him up, saying, Get up quickly. And the change fell off his hand. So just because it's a spirit doesn't mean it can't interact with the physical realm, right? It can interact in the physical realm. The nature of the spiritual beings is not all-knowing. That's good. Who's the only one that's all-knowing? God is. God's the only one that's not all-knowing. Now, are angels smart? Sure, they're smart, but they don't know everything. Uh, 1 Peter 10, 1, 1, 10 through 12 demonstrates this. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that they have now been announced to you 
through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look, right? If they're longing to look into the issues of salvation, right, then they don't know everything, right? And they can't experience it. That is true. Yeah, uh, redemption is not for the angels. Which, talking about redemption not for the angels would be a whole nother discussion. But, Scripture pretty clearly teaches that redemption is for humanity. In the nature usage of the word, we also saw status defined by the adjective use of the word, such as holy for Holy Spirit, right? Or unclean for a fallen spirit, right? So the status, right, is determined often by the uh, <coughs> adjective or defined by the New Testament as a demon, okay? The status is also divine by casting them, the, the demons and the angels, as fallen or wandering stars, okay? Uh, Mark 13, 24 through 27 would be a good example. But in those days, after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers of heaven will be shaken, okay? So they're falling stars, uh, that Revelation 12 would be reflective on this uh, passage. The powers of heaven will be shaken. The, the angels will fall in, in their power, okay? And they're seen as stars there. And when they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and great glory, and then he will send out his angels and gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth. From the ends of the earth to the end to the ends of heaven. So then the good angels are gathering up the elect, right? So Paul also uses status language to describe the fallen supernatural beings, like Ephesians 2.2, 2, Ephesians 6.12, Colossians 2.15. There are several other places he does this. The status also shows their function of ruling the world, which has begun to reclaim which Christ has begun to reclaim through his death and resurrection, and he will ultimately reclaim at his second coming. So these spiritual forces ruling the world is supported by Deuteronomy 32.8. So here we have in Ephesians 2.2, 2, uh, talking about those who, was, who are saved, but how they once walked, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, right? The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, all right? So he's the prince of the power of the air, not the heavens, but the air. So if we're talking about the different heavens, right? The first heaven, okay? Not the second or the third heaven. For we do not wrestle, and then verse 12 says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, so it's obviously now that we're talking about what? Spiritual forces, right? Of all different kinds, right? 
but against rulers. So that's one class or status of spiritual forces, rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So here we have several different statuses of spiritual forces that are aligned against the people of God, right? And their status speaks to their function, right? They are ruling. They are authorities. Where are they authorities? Where are they ruling? On earth, right? Where else? They don't rule in heaven. Who rules in heaven? God does, right? So they rule on earth. Now, obviously, on the cross, right, these guys, they lost their status of ruling or began to uh, lose their status of ruling. They haven't lost it totally because he hasn't took it away. It won't be taken away until his return. But it says in 15, on the cross, through the resurrection, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. Okay? So, uh, Deuteronomy 32.8 says, When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the numbers of the... What? Sons of God. That's right. So in the Old Testament, the only reference to sons of God are angels. And so then in the New Testament, believers take on the aspect of sons of God. Is that and see that what it means? And so then as these sons of God were divided up to rule the world, right? That's what happened at the Tower of Babel. He divided, uh, he confused the languages, right? And then for each language, he appointed one of the sons of God to maintain and to rule. And those sons of God, according to Psalm 82, instead of pointing the nations to God like they were supposed to, they said, what did they do? They said, worship me. That's what the angels wanted them to do, right? And that's how we get little G gods, okay? And, and so we in the new heaven and new earth are sons of God and are given the responsibility of ruling the new heaven and new earth with Christ, Right? So let's look at the words used to show status for the faithful spiritual beings. We just looked at status of uh, demonics, and their status is to rule over the earth and to rule over the nations, right? And we have some of that language we've already looked at, like in Daniel chapter 10, with the prince of Persia and Michael, the prince of Israel, fighting against that, that demonic force. So we have uh, some of that knowledge behind us, but let's look at the words used to show status for faithful spiritual beings. So the first word uh, to show status for faithful, uh, for the faithful ones is archangel. We've all heard that term, right? Archangel. 
And the reference for that is 1 Thessalonians 4.16 and Jude 9. They use the term. And it means ruling angel, chief angel, right? And Michael, one of the two angels named in Scripture, is an archangel. All right, Michael, the archangel. For the Lord himself would descend with heaven from, from heaven with a cry of command and the voice of an archangel. Excuse me. And with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Come, Lord Jesus, come, right? But the archangel is going to make the cry, right? The voice of an archangel. And then in Jude uh, 9, it says, But when the archangel, Michael, contended with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemy of judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Now, there's a lot of speculation of why that Michael is arguing or contending about the body of Moses. And uh, the truth is, is, there's just lots of speculation. Nobody knows for sure. But uh, Moses was buried by God somewhere around Mount Nebo. And in the valleys there uh, was the, often a place for the uh, Canaanite and the different uh, people groups that weren't Israelites was the pla places for the place of the dead, like, like, like hell. And there was like a whole lot of uh, worship of the dead there. So in Second Timothy Jewish literature, they're thinking that they developed this idea because nobody knew where Moses was being buried, that then because he was buried in this area, in this location, that perhaps Satan had some kind of claim on Moses. And I would just want to say the whole point of Jude 9 is that God is the one that has the power to rebuke evil forces. That would be the main point of Jude 9. Uh, Michael, who is an archangel, the, the chief of all the angels, doesn't rely on his own power when dealing with the enemy, but he says what? The Lord rebuke you, right? And I would say that's the theological thrust of uh, Jude 9, why uh, he decides to use the distributing of the body of Moses and all the history behind that is hard to discern and really educated guesses there. All right. Angels do not have the status of worship, for they refuse it, right? And we all know that. We saw that in the Old Testament. We saw that in the intertestamental period. And now we see that in the New Testament as well. Revelation uh, 9, 22, 8 and through 9, this demonstrates that. I, John, am one of and the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down and worshiped at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. And then he gives him a command. Worship who? Worship God, right? So God is the only one that deserves our worship. And that goes for us too. Yeah, yeah. We are to worship God. 
All right, so that covers what I had laid out for tonight. We're going to actually pick up and finish it up next week. Uh, we're going to wrap up the discussion of Heavenly Host, looking at the word angel in the New Testament. 175 times, that's how many times the word angel is in the New Testament. And knowing their role will inform us of our role in the new heaven and new earth. Any questions or thoughts? Points of clarification. Yeah, then you'll just have to text me and I'll answer them in the morning. <laughs> I did say text but, or email. <laughs> oh boy.